Creation is a theatre of God's glory. Scripture is like a pair of glasses that clarifies our vision of God. And justification is the hinge on which religion turns. Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Those affirmations are often associated with the great 16th century French Protestant reformer John Calvin. But who was Calvin and what did he actually believe and teach? Joining me on the show today is Yuda Tianto, Professor of the History of Christianity and Reformed Theology at Calvin Theological Seminary in the States. He's just published a new book with IVP America called An Explorer's Guide to John Calvin in their Explorer's Guide series. And Yuda joins me now from the States. Yuda, hi, how are you? Hello, Brent. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Now, what's the idea behind this book, An Explorer's Guide to John Calvin? Good question. Uh, IVP um, wants to publish a series of books where the readers are introduced to um, um, important people in history. Now, the, the, the books in the series are intended for audience who only have very little um, uh, knowledge uh, or ideas about the uh, the person or uh, a reader who doesn't have any um, uh, uh, previous knowledge about that that person or that uh, that uh, hero in history so um, IVP approached me in the fall of 2018 um, to ask me if uh, I would be willing to write one on John Calvin. At that time, I was teaching at Trinity Christian College in uh, Palos Heights, Illinois in the US. And that year marked the 15th time I was teaching my class on Calvin and the Institute. So uh, upon getting the request from IVP, I said, yes, I dropped everything else that I was doing at that time. Uh, and I started writing um, this book. So the, the idea behind this book, again, is to introduce Calvin as who he is to, um, uh, to readers with uh, no prior knowledge of him or very little knowledge of him in uh, in a fashion that is easy to read and easy to understand. So the book um, has two parts. The first part is introducing Calvin, uh, the man himself. And the second part is a guide to read the um, uh, 1559 edition of the Institutes, uh, the most definitive um, uh, edition of uh, the Institute of the Christian Religion. So with that in mind, I wrote this book and I was pitching my book to a college level readership. So uh, for a sophomore, second year of college students, university students. So the language is not technical, but the way I write this book is of course, based on years and years and years of research. So it is a serious book that is written for a wider audience to non-specialists in the history of Christianity or uh, Calvinism in, uh, in particular. Yes, it's a very fine introduction to Calvin as, as well. I've not, I have to say, I put my hand up and say, I've not come across a better introduction to Calvin in all my years of, of reading about him. Um, it's very fine. Can we just explain, before we come on to the Institutes, uh, Yuta, first of all, who was John Calvin? Yes, 
John Calvin uh, is a second generation reformer. Now, uh, when we talk about the Reformation, uh, our, um, our minds directly go to um, Martin Luther. 1517, the 95 Thesis, uh, the big change in the landscape of uh, Western Christianity, starting um, uh, with Martin Luther in Germany, and the uh, reform or the Reformation movement developed and grew and caught fire uh, in the next many decades. Now, John Calvin was born in 1509. So if you look at the date, uh, when Martin Luther wrote and discussed the 95 Thesis in, in, uh, in Wittenberg in 1517, Calvin was only about eight years old. So you can see here that, that that's why I uh, call him a second generation reformer. By the time he was born, uh, Luther's um, uh, teaching um, uh, had caught fire, had spread um, in many parts of Europe. Calvin was born in Noyon, in the Picardy, uh, in the northern part of France, um, in July of 1509. And at that time, of course, um, uh, he was born in a family of uh, devout um, followers of, uh, of the, uh, the church, at that time, the Church of Rome. Now, Calvin grew up in the environment, especially I'm talking about the education here, uh, in uh, what we call um, um, within the, uh, the influence of the humanist movement. And humanism is a movement that was very common in, uh, uh, um, in the early 16th century, the time when Calvin got his education, that uh, brought people to go back to the source. The, uh, the battle cry of humanism was, at Fontes or back to the source, and uh, for for them, the um, back to uh, to the source meant back to the uh, classical um, uh, Greek philosophy, art, culture, and Roman um, uh, uh, culture and literature, and uh, going back reading um, the the thoughts of the classical philosophers. Now, the the uh, humanist movement was really influential in uh, the Reformation itself. And therefore, Calvin as a young man, as a young boy at that time, uh, within the uh, education that he received, he was formed and very much influenced by the thought about going back to the sources. Now for the Christians and, and, and for the reformers, the first generation reformers, such as Martin Luther and Zwingli, for them, the back to the source or the ad fontes meant reading the Bible in its original languages of Greek and Hebrew, and not just reading uh, the Bible in Latin. If you go back to uh, education in Europe at that time, um, uh, the the Latin language was the language of education and also the language of the church. So. Um, for the, the common people in the church, the people sitting at the pews, the language of the church was detached from their everyday experience. Let's say they were in Germany, the peasants in Germany, they spoke German. And how would you expect them to know the, uh, the language of the church, what the, the priests um, uh, spoke to them um, at mass? So uh, again, back to the source, back to the languages of, um, of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, brought the Reformation back into the uh, reading the Bible in the original languages. And that was one of the most important elements, components that 
enabled the Reformation to happen. So now back to Calvin, when he was a schoolboy and also um, through his studies, the influence of humanism really shaped him. And also, of course, the, the influences of, of um, uh, the first generation reformers were already there that brought him into the realization of what was not right with the church in Rome at that time. Of course, Luther had shown the, the, the people, the, um, the Christians uh, at that time, the selling of the indulgences, uh, salvation by grace alone, justification by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in, in, um, in Christ alone, and um, the sola scriptura, that uh, the, the Bible is the foundation for faith and conduct. So these were already there, and Calvin grew into that uh, um, uh, that milieu, and and that was the turning point for him. Even though Calvin himself was never clear of when the turning point ever happened. Yes, and as we were chatting before the interview, we were talking about how Calvin really lived most of his life in exile, away from his native France. Now, how did that come about? Yes. Uh, so, well, even though he grew up in um, uh, in France, France at that time uh, was against uh, the, the Protestant movement. Uh, France was pretty much Catholic, and um, there were lots of um, there were lots of um, turmoils that happened. Now, if, when when you read your, uh, my book, you can uh, see all the detail. But um, uh, long story short, uh, Calvin had to leave um, uh, France and and in in the year 1536 he already published his Institute of the Christian Religion the very first edition it was a book of a very slim book of six chapters that um, uh, outlined uh, his his uh, theological thought now Calvin was on the way to Strasbourg he wanted to go to Strasbourg and he had the idea that Strasbourg is the place where he, where he would find his joy. Uh, on the way to Strasbourg um, that night, he was detained or detoured uh, because there was war um, uh, along the way. And so he made a detour to Geneva. In Geneva that night, some people already knew who Calvin was, the author of the Institute of the Christian Religion. And... It so happened that Geneva had become Protestant. So it's a, a rather long story. Um, before Calvin's arrival in Geneva in 1536, Geneva already um, uh, declared itself um, a Protestant uh, city. They, uh, they deposed the, uh, the Bishop of Rome. Uh, and then um, uh, Guillaume Farrell or William Farrell was the minister in Geneva at that time. Now, upon hearing that Calvin was there in uh, in the city that night, Pharrell came to Calvin and said, you must help me and the cause of the uh, uh, Reformation here in the city. Calvin didn't want to. He didn't have the intention of being in the spotlight. He just wanted to have a, a quiet life of thinking and writing. He wanted a retreat. And besides, he didn't have Geneva uh, in his plan at all. Strasbourg was his plan. But then Pharrell told Calvin that uh, may God curse you, basically, that if you are not helping us in this cause of the, uh, 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 of, of the, of the Reformation. 
And upon hearing that, Calvin was so terrified. He felt like almost if God himself was like uh, the way I picture uh, it is that God was kind of really shaking him and I said, you stay here. And he agreed. So uh, from 1536 to 1538, uh, he was staying in Geneva, but that's not without challenges because Geneva itself was not a difficult place. The people of Geneva, uh, uh, in my uh, interpretation, were very proud of themselves and it was hard for them to accept Calvin. Remember that Calvin was not a Genevan. He was an, uh, he was a foreigner. Um, so uh, it was hard for Calvin to, to do his work uh, at, at, at the beginning stage and lots of uh, oppositions that caused him and Pharrell to be deposed from the city in 1538. Um, um, the, the, the city council um, officially deposed um, uh, Calvin and, and Pharrell. So Calvin went to Strasbourg and um, so he got what he wanted uh, uh, in Strasbourg and he was happy in Strasbourg uh, to lead a, a small French speaking refugees uh, a church in Strasbourg. But as soon as Calvin and Pharrell um, uh, left Geneva, the, the Protestant Genevans realized that uh-uh, we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, operate without Calvin and we need him. Um, so they, they called him, they negotiated with him, but it took them about three years, not until 1541 that Calvin returned to Geneva. So that's, um, that's a rather uh, complicated uh, situation that Calvin uh, saw in his life, but from 1541 until the end of um, uh, his life in 1564, Calvin lived and did his work in Geneva. Yes, and we'll come back to talk a little bit more about the impact he had on the church and indeed on the city of Geneva shortly, but we must talk about the institutes. Now, I had to read the complete institutes in my first end of my first year at a theological college. I absolutely loved them. Why are the institutes such a profound and awesome and groundbreaking work? And why are they so important? Why were they so important to the Reformation? And why are they still so important to us now? Because the institutes explains what the Bible teaches in a very coherent and consistent manner. This book is biblical. And what I mean by biblical is that it is grounded in the Bible. It is strongly grounded in scripture, but presented in such a way that it spoke to the larger audience of Calvin's time. When you read the Institutes, you will be amazed that almost every paragraph is full with Calvin's way of reading the scripture. He always says, according to Jeremiah, this passage, or according to Isaiah in, uh, in this verse, this is what the Bible uh, talks about. So the Institutes, um, uh, uh, even though, uh, when we look at the 1559 edition of the Institute, we can see that it is a, a, a theological book, but within this theological work is the Bible all the way through, explained to an audience that uh, were familiar with the style of writing. Now, another important feature of, of the Institutes is that the way Calvin starts this book, he starts by saying all wisdom, all 
true and sound wisdom consists of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. That is the very first line from the first book um, uh, and the first chapter of the Institute. Now, why is this so important? It gives the audience an idea of the connection between wisdom and knowledge. Sapientia uh, uh, and cognitio, or sapientia and scientia. Wisdom is not separated from knowledge. And what kind of knowledge is that? two things, the knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And for Kelvin, the two knowledges are inseparable. Whichever way you will start, it doesn't matter for him, because when you look at yourself, there's no way that you can just know about yourself from your own self. You must look to God. And when you uh, look at God as our creator, as our redeemer, then we understand who we are as human beings created by God, fallen, but then redeemed by uh, uh, the, the blood of Christ. So these two knowledges are always together, and it gives us a solid foundation and understanding of how we look at our Christian life. So that's why, as I, as I said, it is consistent, it's coherent, it's complete uh, teaching of the scripture following the methodology that was familiar for the people in Calvin's time. Yes, and uh, he made uh, inroads on in many, many areas of theology and systematized things and explained things in a way that's, that's still uh, outstanding today, isn't it? I want to come on and talk about some of his particular theological views, Yuda, if I may, in the time we've got left. Sure. Yeah. What was Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper, and how did it differ, say, from Luther's view or Zwingli's views? Because this is an important part of, and or indeed Cranmer in England, and the Church of England. Yes. Well, uh, uh, to answer your question, we must go back to before the Reformation. The Church of Rome taught and held the few that we today call the, the transubstantiation. Uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation is that um, the bread and the wine literally turn into the body and the blood of Christ. Now, the, uh, the word literally, I always under, underline it. When I teach this to my students, I will underline that on the board because there's the belief that uh, the elements really become... The, uh, the, the, the body and the blood of Christ. Now, what is important in this belief is that in the communion, believers are united with Christ. And that is important. And, and, and uh, uh, I, will, I will highlight this all through um, these um, three or four different views, right? So the, the union with Christ um, in, in the Eucharist or in the Lord's Supper, for the Church of Rome, even starting in the medieval time, the, the, the literal turn on, uh, of the elements into the body of Christ make the, uh, the, uh, the element, make, make the, the, the body and the blood of Jesus become one with the believers. So that's transubstantiation. Now, Luther came. Luther tried to get away from, from uh, uh, the transubstantiation. But for me, he could not completely shake off um, of, of his previous uh, uh, beliefs and how he was taught. Right? We, we can only go thus far uh, for certain things. So for, for Luther, um, um, 
the real presence of Christ. So this is about the real presence, right? That uh, uh, in, in transubstantiation, Christ is really literally present when the uh, bread turns into um, uh, the body of Christ and the wine turns into the blood of Christ. Now for Luther, it's not a literal turning, but the togetherness that when you receive the elements, the, uh, uh, the bread, is together in above and under the uh, the body of Christ and the blood um, uh, uh, and the wine are together. So it's called um, uh, consubstantiation, con meaning with together. But again, this is still the uh, the uh, the view that there is a real presence of Christ and the union with Christ, the unity um, uh, between the believer and and Christ. Now, Swingley um, uh, took a different um, uh, view of this. Now, for Swingley, what we need to know is the, the distinction between the, the thing signifies and the thing being signified. The, uh, uh, the signifier and the thing being signified. Now, for Swingley, the bread signifies the body of Christ and the wine signifies um, uh, the blood of Christ. Now, Many Protestants, especially those who follow follow uh, the teaching of Calvin, sometimes misunderstand what what, Luth, uh, what Swingley said as though the Lord's Supper was only symbolical. Um, this more than just being symbolical. I want to set it straight. For 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 Luther, Jesus still takes center stage. So Swingley did not want to discount the significance of Christ, but for Swingley, the point is that there is no literal presence or um, or or uh, bodily presence of of Christ, but the, the 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 bread and the wine symbolize Christ. Now Calvin takes the the these three views and he brought his own um, uh, interpretation of the Lord's Supper, where he says, "Well, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, Christ is present. Don't say that Christ is not present." It's very important, but Christ is present not in bodily, physical presence, but Christ is present in spirit. So when we eat the, the bread, we eat Christ, but not that the bread either turns into flesh or together with some kind of flesh, but um, uh, Jesus is present. Now here you can see that this is still about uh, union with Christ. What I want to emphasize is that the Lord's Supper, the majority of the theological views of the Lord's Supper talk about union with Christ. How the union with Christ is, um, uh, is explained and happens in this uh, different theology, that's where the differences are. But for Calvin, Christ is really present. And for that reason, Calvin really wanted a very frequent um, uh, uh, celebration of, of the Lord's Supper. The city of Geneva didn't want to do uh, that, so they, they only wanted to do this four times a year. That's one of the reasons why there were debates in 1538 and Calvin was divorced. Yes, I think, am I right in remembering that Calvin wanted it weekly? wanted a weekly yes. Lord's Supper? Yeah. Weekly, yeah, mm. weekly. But then mm. uh, the Genevan said, no, 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 well, we just got rid of the Catholics. <laughs> We haven't got that much bread to go around. <laughs> One of the other areas uh, where Calvin has been so influential is in the understanding of the doctrine of salvation, and particularly uh, the 
uh, doctrines of election and predestination. Now, why is Calvin's understanding of election and predestination, why has it been so controversial during the centuries? All right. Um, it is controversial because people make it controversial. <laughs> <laughs> For me. It's just in the Bible. It's just in the okay. Bible. It's just in the yeah. Bible. <laughs> it's just the Bible, right? Read Ephesians chapter one, the beginning of Paul's letter of the Ephesians. It's right there. But anyways, uh, I, I can be very animated when I'm talking about be, Please be as animated as you like. <laughs> All right. Now, let's go back. Many, uh, many Christians uh, uh, have a misunderstanding of Calvin's theology as though Calvin's theology starts with the doctrine of predestination and predestination became a central dogma uh, out of which Calvin built all his theological system. That is wrong. And when you read my book, uh, you can see that I, I, um, uh, I denounce that kind of uh, uh, view. It is not. Let's go back from the beginning of the Institutes. I already said that Calvin starts the Institute by talking about wisdom consisting of knowledge of God and knowledge of self. When we look at God, God is the creator and the, uh, the provider of all creation, and we are created by God, and that's the whole system of, uh, of theology. There's no predestination there. What's there is about God who creates and who provides. And within the theology of providence is the theology of salvation. Providence also means that God can redeem us. And in reality, he does redeem us, even when we are so wretched in our sinfulness. So the, this theology is a theology of God's sovereignty, can you see that? So mm. when we look at God, God the creator and God the, the provider is sovereign over all creation. So when you look at um, uh, this theology this way, we see, oh, so because God is our creator and our provider and the reality of sin is there and God now, for Calvin also, so, um, uh, that uh, we always um, uh, have to remember that uh, when we think about God, for Calvin, it's uh, we think about God the Creator and also God the Redeemer. Well, Creator, Provider, and then God the Redeemer. So you can see here the eternity of God, that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are you know the Creator and the Redeemer and the Provider. God is not divided. So here it's a very clear theology of God, the Trinity, that now will carry us to understand. So if God is the creator and the redeemer, when we fall into sin, the redeemer is always there. Sin was not a surprise for God. God doesn't say, oops, I made a mistake. So let's try to do damage control. No, that is not God. So within the reality of God, the Trinity, and what we see in, in, in sin, God creates and God saves. Now, also, in the spirit of the Reformation and in the theology of the Reformation, we always say that there is no part, there is no part in human being that can save themselves. Not a speck of goodness is in us where, once we fell into sin. So if we want to be consistent, then we must say that there is nothing in us that can even 
start to want to be saved by God or even to start to want to come back to God. There's nothing. Okay, right? So this is um, uh, uh, the whole belief of the Reformation. There's no way that human being can save um, uh, uh, themselves. So salvation by work is out. Salvation is by grace alone. Again, if we want to be consistent, then we see that all these beliefs lead us to the, to, uh, it must depend completely uh, 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 on God and God's goodness. Mm. We're just about out of time. Do you just want to quickly sum up in about a minute and finish off for us? Okay. So now, uh, 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 after looking at that, then we see that it is God who saves us. So hence the doctrine of predestination. So uh, that salvation is not our own doing, that based on all the theological system and belief that's there, then... um, the answer to the question of salvation is that everything depends on God. And it is because of the sovereignty of God is that God is the one choosing us and saving us. Mm. Thank you so much. We could talk for hours and hours, Yuda, about Calvin and the Institutes. They're fabulous. Uh, the book is uh, by Yuda Tianto, and it's from IVP America, and it's called An Explorer's Guide to John Calvin in their Explorer's Guide series. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Yuda, thank you so much for your time, sir. It's a pleasure, Brent. Thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.